Good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. It's good to gather as the Lord's people to worship the Lord together. Some things never change, said no one ever in reference to Restoration Road Church. If you have been a part of the church, even for a short period of time, you have seen some change. If you have been a part of the church for the entirety of our seven-plus-year history, then you have witnessed considerable change. The church originally began as a Sunday evening gathering of Damascus Road Church in November of 2013. The gathering took place at the building in Snohomish that is now the laundromat, but at the time it belonged to Christ the King Snohomish. The church then moved to a Sunday morning gathering in February of 2014 when we began renting part of this building. In 2014, the church went from being a campus of Damascus Road Church to an autonomous church known as Restoration Road Church. In the following years, many wonderful members as well as staff members were added and new ministries were started as the church began to grow and change. In January of 2019, Restoration Road Church took a step of faith and bought this entire building, giving us a more permanent presence here in the heart of Snohomish. In June of 2019, Redemption Church in Mill Creek merged into Restoration Road Church and the former Redemption members got plugged in and I had the joy of joining Sam on staff. In October of 2019, the CrossFit gym moved out of the front space downstairs and we began the process of remodeling to turn it into the beautiful space that it is now. In November of 2020, Bridge City Church in the South Snohomish Mill Creek area merged into Restoration Road, and we had the joy of welcoming Nate McGlinchey on staff, as well as the wonderful members of Bridge City. Over the last few years, we've had a lot of members move out of the area for a variety of reasons, some to other parts of the state and some to other parts of the country. And at the same time, at our last member meeting in April, we welcomed 21 new members into the life of our church. We have seen considerable change. If you don't like change, this church is a good place for your sanctification. (laughs) And of course, last Sunday, we experienced yet another significant change in the life of our church as Pastor Sam, who has served as the lead pastor of our church's entire seven-plus-year history, transitioned out of his role as lead pastor. And if you know Sam, you know that he is a great leader, a faithful pastor, a wise counselor, and a dear friend. Needless to say, this recent change is no small thing. And with a transition of this magnitude, it is natural to wonder what else might change. But through all of the change that has taken place in the life of our church, it is actually true that some very important things have remained the same. And with Sam's transition and the questions that might arise, our desire this morning is to call attention to a few of the things that have remained the same and will continue to remain the same in the life of our church. We are going to do so by turning to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, through chapter 2, verse 5. If you're not familiar with the Bible, the book of 1 Corinthians is in the New Testament and was originally a letter that was written by a man named Paul to a church community in a city named Corinth. Now, when we talk about Paul being the author of the letter, we, you need to understand that When we speak of the books of the Bible, there are human authors, but ultimately, God is the author of Scripture. And we refer to this as the inspiration of Scripture. God inspired human authors to write what he wanted them to write 
in these books, and he ensured that they were preserved and collected into what we have as the Bible. So on one hand, Paul was the author of this letter. On the other hand, it was God who was inspiring him to write exactly what God wanted him to write. And therefore, when we read this letter that was written by Paul, we know that we are reading the word of God. So after he became a Christian, Paul worked diligently to preach the gospel and help start new churches in different cities and regions. He traveled in what we refer to as missionary journeys, traveling far and wide in order to preach the gospel to as many people as possible, and in so doing, he helped to start and form new church communities. Corinth was a major port city in the ancient world and was therefore a strategic location for Paul to carry out his missionary activity. He spent approximately a year and a half there during his second missionary journey telling people the good news about Jesus. A good number of people responded to his message and they formed a new church community. And after his time in Corinth, he traveled to other cities to continue to preach the gospel. During his travels, he received a report about the church in Corinth. And sadly, it was reported to him that the church had numerous problems. And so in this letter to the Corinthians, Paul addressed their problems by unpacking the truths and implications of the gospel so that the Corinthians would apply the gospel to their own lives and to their church. And the first problem he addressed in chapters 1 through 4 was divisions in the church. So again, our text is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10 through chapter 2, verse 5. I'll read. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you you may be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Paulos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power." For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, 
to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Well, after his initial greeting in the first nine verses of the letter, Paul made an appeal to the church in Corinth. He made an appeal to the Corinthians because of some bad news he had received about their church. He had received the report, likely while he was in Ephesus, sometime after he had spent time in Corinth. Now, to make an appeal is to ask for something earnestly, if not to outright plead for something. He was not making a casual request. He was not saying, you know, it would be nice if you guys would do these things I'm asking you to do. No, he made it passionately, but he did not make his appeal angrily. He made it affectionately. He referred to the Corinthians as brothers, which is a word that referred to fellow believers, usually both brothers and sisters in Christ. He made his appeal affectionately because he loved them. He also emphasized the weightiness of his appeal by saying that he was appealing to the Christians by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was not appealing to them by his own authority. He was appealing to them by the authority of Jesus Christ. He wanted to understand that this appeal carried the weight of Jesus. So what was so important to him? For what did he plead with the Corinthians in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? He pleaded with them to agree with one another so that there would be no divisions among them and so that they would be united in the same mind and the same judgment. You see, he cared deeply for the unity of the church. And he cared deeply for the unity of the church because Jesus cares deeply for the unity of the church. The reason for their quarreling and divisions was that a cult of personality had developed based on the most prominent teachers who had made their way to Corinth. After Paul spent time in Corinth preaching the gospel and establishing the church, others came as well, including Apollos, who was a powerful preacher in the early church. Also, Peter came and preached at Corinth. Peter, of course, was a disciple of Christ and one of the most well-known apostles. I don't know if the Corinthians understood how good they had it, but they had some very good preachers come through. And they were faithful preachers. Yes, they were different. They were different in personality. They were probably different in pre preaching style. Maybe their, their points of, of emphasis were different, but they were all faithful preachers. And certainly they didn't go to Corinth to develop their own personal following. It's not as though Peter went to Corinth so that people would follow Peter. Nonetheless, the Corinthians started picking teams. I'm on Paul's team. I'm on Apollos' team. I'm on Peter's team. And they were identifying with these different itinerant preachers as a point of pride. As though attaching themselves to a particular preacher or figure gained them some higher status. 
And there were those who even said, well, I belong to Christ. And you might think, well, they were the ones who got it right. That sounds good and right, yet Paul included them as those who were divided. And so it seems as though they were using the name of Christ in some negative way rather than calling on everyone to be united in Christ. So Paul responded to this problem incredulously. He said, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? The obvious answer to these rhetorical questions was no. Christ is not divided. Paul was not crucified for the Corinthians, and they were not baptized in the name of Paul. Paul did baptize a handful of people, but they were not baptized into his name. He was saying, I'm not the big deal. Apollos is not the big deal. Peter is not the big deal. You should not be trying to attach yourselves to these preachers. Jesus is the big deal. He is the one who was crucified for you. The church belongs to him. In 1 Corinthians 4, 1-2, Paul wrote, This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. All of the teachers and itinerant preachers who taught at Corinth were servants and stewards who were required to be faithful. Servants of Christ who were called to point people to Christ and be faithful stewards of the gospel of Christ. He wanted them to understand we are merely serving the one whom you should worship. Therefore, the Corinthians should not have been picking teams. They should not have been quarreling about whom they follow. Rather, they should have been unified in their identity as those who are in Christ. The church, after all, belongs to Jesus. In Acts 20, 28, Paul referred to the church as the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Christ is referred to as the head of the church in several places in the New Testament, including Colossians 1.18, which reads, And he is the head of the body, the church. The church is the body, and Christ is the head, and we are called to be unified in him. Paul began his letter to the Corinthians, whom he loved, by calling on them to pursue unity diligently. And what we see in these verses that I read is that the unity that he called them to is the unity that is in Christ Jesus. After all, we all enter the church through the same door. I'm not talking about this building or the door on First Street. I'm talking about the gospel. We all become members of Christ's body through the gospel. If you are not a Christian, we are glad you are here. And our hope and our prayer today is that you will understand the gospel and believe in Christ and be saved. You see, God is the one who made every single one of us. We are made in his image. He made us with this special purpose of enjoying relationship with him, knowing him, obeying him, glorifying him, and enjoying him for all of eternity. He made us for this wonderful purpose. Sadly, every single one of us has rejected him. Every single one of us has sinned against him. And because we are sinners, we all deserve judgment. If God were to only give us what we deserve, we would all receive eternity in hell. But God in his mercy and his loving kindness has provided a way for sinners like you and me to be saved, to be reconciled to him, to have our relationship with him restored to its fullness. 
And he did so at great cost to himself. He did so by providing Jesus Christ as our Savior, as the one to offer himself as a sacrifice to take the punishment for our sin in our place. Jesus Christ was crucified upon the cross to take the punishment we deserve for our sin. He rose from the grave conquering death. And he ascended into heaven where he is now seated at the right hand of the Father. And the good news is that everyone who believes in Christ will receive the forgiveness of their sins and the gift of eternal life. If you are not a Christian, our hope, our prayer for you is that you will believe in Christ and be saved. That is what unites us here at Restoration Road Church. We are not united because we are good people. We are not. We are not united in common interests and hobbies. We are united in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, we have all entered the church through the same door, and that is the gospel. In calling the Corinthians to unity, Paul went on to differentiate between the world's understanding of wisdom versus God's understanding of wisdom. Paul believed that the divisions in Corinth could be healed if the Corinthians embraced the wisdom of God rather than the wisdom of the world. Well, what does that mean? When Paul preached the gospel, he did not do so with eloquent wisdom. Frank Thielman notes, The art of rhetorical persuasion was highly valued in the Greco-Roman world, and professional orators frequented large cities like Corinth, giving impressive displays of their ability to entertain and instruct. Paul's proclamation of the gospel failed to measure up to these standards. The reason Paul did not want to rely on eloquent wisdom or rhetorical persuasion was because he did not want the cross of Christ to be emptied of its power. He didn't want people to profess to be Christians and join the church because they were impressed with him. He wanted to win people to Christ, not to himself. Instead of wowing people with his rhetorical skills, he his preaching centered on Christ's death upon the cross. And this was a big problem for Jewish people and non-Jewish people whom he referred to as Greeks. The unbelieving Jews wanted a demonstration of miraculous power. And during his earthly ministry, Jesus was confronted by certain Jewish opponents who demanded that he perform a miraculous sign for them. They wanted him to do their bidding. And while Jesus did perform miraculous signs during his ministry, he would not do so at their request. He would not do so to appease his opponents. It was not a show that he was putting on. And when he was crucified, his opponents believed that proved once and for all that he was not the Messiah. He was not God's chosen king whom God would send into the world to save his people. Because how can a Messiah, how can a victorious king die upon a Roman cross? For an unbelieving Jew, a crucified Messiah was an offense and was flat out absurd. The Greeks considered themselves to be a cultured people who valued eloquent wisdom. And therefore the idea of a crucified Messiah was despicable nonsense. Crucifixion was such a crude and horrendous method of execution that they would not even speak of it. So for the Jews, the message of the cross was a stumbling block. How can we trust in a crucified Messiah? For the Greeks, the message of the cross was foolish nonsense. Why bother us with talk of a man who died as a criminal in such a shameful way? 
But the fact that the cross was a stumbling block for the Jews and folly for the Greeks did not cause him to back down from preaching the gospel at all. Instead, he leaned in, preaching Christ crucified, refusing to cater to the whimsical demands of sinful people who were in rebellion against God. The gospel was not a popular message, but Paul was not trying to win a popularity contest. Moreover, he was not going to rely on human devices to bring about the salvation of sinners. No, Paul trusted in God's power to save sinners, and he trusted in God's method to save sinners. He said, for the word of the cross is the power of God. In Romans 1.16, he wrote, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also to the Greek. In Romans chapter 10, Paul explained the necessity of preaching the gospel, and he concluded in verse 17 by saying, So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. The gospel, the message of Christ, is the power of God. And for people to believe, they must hear the gospel. And therefore, it is necessary for the gospel to be proclaimed, whether it's in a one-on-one conversation that you might have with a friend, a coworker, or family member, or whether it might be preached in a setting like this in the gathering of the church. The gospel must be proclaimed so that people will hear. And we must trust that when we proclaim the gospel, it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. There is no other way that people may be saved. There is no other name given under heaven by which men may be saved. The gospel is the power of God, and the gospel must be preached. God, in his infinite wisdom, uses the folly of the gospel to save those who believe. What the world sees as wisdom is no wisdom at all, and what the world sees as folly is true wisdom and true power. Paul wanted to remind the Corinthians of the gospel. He wanted them to remember that they were all sinners. The gospel levels the playing field. We are all sinners. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. Not one of us is righteous apart from Christ. But in Christ, we receive his righteousness. He wanted to remind them of the gospel in order to heal the divisions in their church. And I love what Paul does in verses 26 through 31 where he uses the Corinthians as proof of his argument. The message was foolish by the world's standards. Paul was foolish by the world's standards. And he went on to say, and you too, by the way, Corinthians, aren't all that impressive either. You were not wise. You were not of noble birth. You did not have a lot of power. The world did not think much of you. But here's the thing. God chose you. God chose you. The world may not think much of you, but who cares? God chose you. You may have been foolish in the eyes of the world. You may be weak in the eyes of the world, but God delights to choose the foolish and the weak to demonstrate his wisdom and his power and his glory. Oh, and listen to this line again. He said, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. We do not boast in ourselves. We do not boast in any 
human leader. We boast in the Lord who chose us and has united us to Jesus Christ. To press the point even further, he said that when he had arrived at Corinth, he didn't come with lofty speech or wisdom, meaning he spoke the gospel in a straightforward manner. He said he decided to know nothing among them except Jesus Christ and him crucified, meaning he didn't try to impress them and win them over by his vast knowledge. He was with them in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, meaning there was no wow factor in his appearance and delivery. His speech and his message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. He relied on God's power working in him and through him by the Holy Spirit as he proclaimed the gospel. He trusted in God's power, and we too are to trust in God's power. The reality is we are all sinful. We are all weak. We are all foolish. But God is powerful, and he delights to use us. And he delights to work his power in us and through us, and therefore we look to him and we rely on his power, not ours. I was talking with Bill Bear, one of our members, a few days ago, and I told him how I was preaching on this text. And he told me how he was reading this very text when God saved him. Someone had been sharing Christ with him, and he had been considering matters of the faith, the Catholic background. And he read something that reminded him of this passage. So he looked it up, and he eventually found this passage. And it was reading this passage that the Lord saved him. How awesome is that? And he said, that was 24 years ago. And I still get chills when I read that passage or hear it read. How awesome is it that the Lord used this passage, talking about the foolishness of the cross, and yet the power of the gospel to save him. What a reminder that God is in the business of saving sinners like us through what the world considers to be foolish, but what God has proven to be his power. Well, many things have changed in the life of the church, and there will likely be more change in the future. But I hope you will see that some things have remained the same and will continue to remain the same. Specifically, our convictions, our commitments, and our confidence will remain the same. And when I speak of our convictions, I'm referring to our theological convictions. Just as Paul held fast to the gospel, so will we. Our belief in the gospel is the basis of our unity. Brothers and sisters, we are not united through a vague or abstract belief in God. We are united in Jesus Christ through the glorious truth of the gospel, which God has revealed to us through his word. And when Paul described unity in our passage, he desired that the Corinthians would all agree and be united in the same mind and the same judgment. One of the tools we use here at Restoration Road Church to help us all agree and be united in the same mind and the same judgment is our statement of faith. If you want to further understand the things we agree on as a church family, I encourage you to read our statement of faith. Our statement brings clarity to what we believe and to what unifies us, which is why we have every prospective member read through our statement of faith. And the bottom line is this. In the seven-plus year history of Restoration Road, we have always sought to be a faithful, gospel-proclaiming, word-centered church, and we will continue to do so. Our commitments refer to the things the elders commit to as well as the things we all commit to as members of this church. The elders all recognize that the church belongs to Jesus. Jesus is the head of the church, and Jesus rules his church through his word. 
And therefore, we recognize that we must submit ourselves to his word, and we must lead in such a way that we are demonstrating that we submit ourselves to his word. How we lead and the decisions we make are ultimately governed by his word. And that shapes what we do here in the life of our church. That shapes all kind of aspects of our church. And as members, we all make commitments to one another. Paul made a strong appeal for the Corinthians to pursue unity in the church because the church is the body of Christ. And as the body of Christ, we are called to live together in a way that glorifies Christ by demonstrating the beauty and the power of the gospel. In light of this, we as the members of this church make commitments to each other for the glory of God. Our commitments to one another will remain. If anything, this time of transition is a good opportunity for us to recommit ourselves to these things. I want to read aloud our member covenant as a reminder of our commitments to one another. You can follow along on the screen. Here is what we commit to as the members of this church. We say, Jesus has saved us from death to life. In response to the sovereign grace of God the Father, we have repented, believed, and been baptized. Relying on the help of the Holy Spirit, we solemnly and joyfully renew our covenant with each other. We will work and pray for the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We will walk together in brotherly love, as is appropriate for the members of a Christian church. We will care and watch out over each other and faithfully admonish and plead with one another, as the occasion might require. We will not forsake the assembling of ourselves together or neglect to pray for ourselves and others. We will endeavor to bring up any children that may be under our care in the nurture and encouragement of the Lord, and by a pure and loving example seek the salvation of our family and friends. We will rejoice at each other's happiness and endeavor with tenderness and sympathy to bear each other's burdens and sorrows. We will seek by divine aid to live carefully in the world, denying ungodliness and worldliness. We will keep in mind that as we have been voluntarily buried by baptism and raised again from the symbolic grave, we have a special obligation now to lead a new and holy life. We will work together for a faithful gospel ministry in this church as we sustain its worship, ordinances, discipline, and doctrines. We will contribute cheerfully and regularly to the support of the ministry, the expenses of the church, the relief of the poor, and the spread of the gospel through all nations. We will, when we move from this place as soon as possible, join another church where we can carry out the spirit of this covenant and the principles of God's word. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen. These are the things we commit to because these are the things that the scriptures encourage us. These are the commands we are given in scripture regarding how we are to live together as a church family. And so our commitments will remain the same. And finally, our confidence refers to the fact that our confidence is in God. We are confident in his power. We are confident in his word. We are confident in his gospel. We are confident that he will use us in spite of ourselves. One of the passages that has been important in the life of Restoration Road is 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 4 through 6, which reads, Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. We are weak. We are sinful. We are inadequate. We are not sufficient, but our sufficiency comes from God. Our confidence comes through Christ. We will not be confident in ourselves. We will be confident in the Lord our God. We will be confident in his word. We will be confident in his gospel. 
what we preach will not be popular, but we will preach Christ crucified. Brothers and sisters, things will change, but the most important thing about our church is that it belongs to Jesus. Jesus is the head of the church, and Hebrews 13, 8 tells us Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you, we worship you, we thank you that you have welcomed us into your family. You have adopted us as your children in Jesus Christ. We belong to you. You have joined us to your body, the church. And what a joy and privilege it is to belong to your church. It is a precious gift. And we pray that you would help, help us to faithfully live as your people. We humbly ask that you would continue to be at work in the life of our church as we trust in you. We pray that you would grant it to us to be faithful to you in all things, to worship you, to love you, to love one another, to be a light and a witness to Jesus Christ. You are good to us, and we do pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.